from today's epistle. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, of the Holy Ghost. This morning we begin our journey towards the cross on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. One of the most ancient seasons of the church calendar is Lent. From as early as the 200s, the church recognized that Christians needed a special period of spiritual preparation in order to really engage the blessings of Easter Day. However, before we arrive at this season of preparation, Lent, we have today and the next two Sundays, which form a little mini-season in the church calendar that goes by the name of pre-Lent or sometimes Jesimatide. The names of the Sundays are Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima, words we use regularly, right? And they're, they're, related, they're related to the Latin words 70, 60, and 50, because on those Sundays, we are roughly 70 or 60 or 50 days from Easter. That's what it corresponds to. Because Lent can be such an intense time of spiritual discipline with fasting and prayer and extra worship services and acts of mercy, because we really do need to hit the ground running come Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, the church calendar beginning today gives us about two and a half weeks to plan, prepare, and ponder our upcoming Lenten discipline. And so in the coming few weeks, we're going to be talking about Lent, talking about fasting, talking about the pragmatic details that go into the Lenten season so that our souls will be well prepared to behold and marvel at the resurrection of our Lord come Easter morn. Today, on this first Sunday of pre-Lent, two themes are presented to us from our readings that set the tone for not just today, but indeed the rest of the Lenten season. The first theme comes from our gospel lesson read by Father Ted. This parable explains how a vineyard owner hires various workers throughout the day. Some are hired in the morning, some at noon, some in the evening, and some with just an hour of the workday left. But the master pays them all the exact same wage. And all the capitalists in the room groaned. I'm kidding. Some of the workers, namely the ones hired first thing in the morning, object to this and claim it isn't fair. They deserve more because they've worked more, which makes sense in human wisdom, does it not? But the master responds by asserting that all the workers agreed to the set wage, and so they have no right to complain. Instead, rejoice. You get the reward. What does this parable teach us? Jesus begins by saying that this story is a parallel to the kingdom of heaven, meaning it's intended to teach us about salvation. The church fathers offer a couple interpretations along these lines, all of which I think are valid and good. First, they say that those who come first in the day are the Jews, and those later in the day are the Gentiles. Even though the Jews have been serving God for centuries prior to Jesus, and the Gentile inclusion, the reward, heaven, eternal life, the beatific vision, it's all the same. Thinking then in the big picture, the fathers of the church gave a second interpretation. Anyone who converts, no matter when during one's life, has access to the full reward of God. 
There are no first class or second class citizens in the kingdom of heaven based upon effort or merit or tenure. Even when we venerate the saints, we aren't setting them up as eternally better than everyone else, but we set them up as examples. They are the goal, the end of all who follow Jesus Christ. And this goes against the grain of human wisdom. Our ideas of justice and fairness can cause us to think that we deserve more or better because we've put in the sweat equity for longer that those other people have not. But the kingdom of heaven is not of this world. It's backwards. It's upside down. That's what Jesus' final phrase in this passage is all about. The last will be first and the first shall be last. In other words, the kingdom of heaven doesn't operate like the kingdoms of this world. It isn't based on effort and merit and, quote, fairness as we conceive of it. No, in some ways, it's actually a very unfair, unjust, unequal kingdom. Because this is the kingdom in which the king submits himself to torture, humility, and death. Even death upon the cross. Why? So that you and me, dirty, rotten, miserable offenders, might have access to the hidden life of the Blessed Trinity. No one deserves this. No one can earn that. All of us, whether we've been in this vineyard, the church, our whole lives, or our converts on our deathbeds, we are all sinners saved by grace, by God's overwhelming love and mercy. This is salvation. This is God's kingdom. This is the parable set before us today. And it's the first and primary theme that sets the tone for the coming Lenten season. Salvation is by grace. As we prepare for and then live out 40 days of fasting and penance, or at least I hope you do, we do so not to earn God's grace or to improve our status in the kingdom of heaven. The grace of Jesus precedes Lent, leads us into Lent, guides us through Lent, and is there at the end of the journey with resurrected arms to welcome us home. Salvation is by grace alone. The second theme that this day puts before us as we begin to set our minds towards Lent it comes from the epistle reading. And as we'll see, it's actually something of the counterpart to this first theme. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, St. Paul compares salvation in Christ to a race. Do you not know, he says, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's saying that our primary concern in this world is the salvation of our own souls. That above all else, church, is what we must be most concerned with with ourselves, for it is the ultimate matter of this life. Just as a runner runs in order that he might actually win the prize, we must live our Christian life with the aim of arriving at the end goal which is eternal life with Christ our Lord. Jesus himself said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? St. Paul continues in our epistle, so I do not run aimlessly. 
I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is a profound sentiment that he shares, isn't it? St. Paul, the apostle of apostles, says that he, even he, must tend to his salvation, lest while preaching to others, while going on missionary journeys, while getting stranded and shipwrecked, while being beaten multiple times, while doing all of these things, he might fail to arrive at the finish line himself. If this is true for him, church, then I would venture to say, no offense, it's true for you as well. And for me, we must, as St. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Salvation is a gift given to us purely by grace. The question is, though, what will you do with that gift? Will you run the race or will you neglect the calling? Will you grow in holiness or will you grieve the Holy Spirit and sever yourself from Christ, as St. Paul said many did in the church of Galatia? Perseverance and the constant pursuit of Christ, it is a necessary component of our salvation as we cooperate with the gift of grace given to us in our baptisms. How, though, do we do this? How do we work out our salvation and run the race and persevere to the finish line? Well, Paul says in the verse I just read that it happens through disciplining the body. We are not, you know, just souls that kind of float around in the clouds. We are humans. We have bodies that house our souls. And even more, our souls and bodies are intimately connected. And so this means that through physical acts of discipline with the body, we can and we do train our souls unto salvation. Through fasting, we learn to hunger, not for food, but for God, the very bread of life. Through extra prayers, we teach our minds to dwell constantly in the heavenly realm. Through almsgiving and serving others, we detach ourselves from worldly goods and seek the kingdom of God found in others. Through private confession, we set aside our pride and we mortify our sins, offering them to Christ and receive forgiveness and absolution from God himself through the lips of his sacred ministers. All of this keeps Christ in our minds and hearts. All of this is by grace, and it is our attention to salvation, and that we might preserve to that great and final day church when we will rise from our graves, every one of us, and there before us we will see our Lord and Savior, and he will utter, should we persevere, those long-awaited words, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That is the goal. That is the prize. That is why we run and strive. How sad it would be to neglect such a gift as grand as eternal salvation by grace. As we enter into and prepare for Lent, it is these two themes then that confront us and undergird us and must guide us until Easter and beyond. Salvation is by grace alone. Therefore, we must strive to work it out with fear and trembling and discipline 
lest we fall away and be disqualified from the race. May we run, church, this Lenten season with all discipline and effort. May we cling to the cross of Christ more fully and more perfectly. May God crown our fight against sin, death, and the devil with an increase of his Holy Spirit in our lives so that one day this earthly body might give away to a heavenly dwelling to help us along this path, to give us the sustenance for the race and journey that lies before each and every one of us, let us come to the altar, to the table of God, and feed upon the only food our souls need, the only bread that grants spiritual strength, the only drink that refreshes the soul, the very meal that satisfies the longings of your heart, Christ himself. For he stands at the beginning of this our Lenten journey. He walks the way of suffering with us and he will be at the end, risen and glorified to meet us in grace. He is coming this morning to meet us, to guide us, to feed us, and to unite us with his most blameless and perfect body and blood. He alone, church, is our King and our God. And to him and to his Father, with the all-holy life-giving Spirit, belongs all honor, glory, dominion, and power, now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen.